I think that's good. You guys good? What's up? Good morning. I think I'm a little loud, but how are you guys? You guys good? All right. Well, we had a pleasant drive listening to a little Credence on the way here. It was great. But uh, anyway, so I hope you guys are well this morning. I'm here to kind of dive into this middle section in 1 Corinthians. Have you guys been enjoying this series so far? If you guys have been here before, um, this is really tall. Uh, so, so we've been kind of looking at the theme. So, so basically, this is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth around 60 A.D., 55, 60 A.D. And it was a church that Paul built uh, a few years ago. And he finds himself now in Ephesus. He, he had planted this church in Corinth. He's now on to the next church in Ephesus. And a couple years later, he gets a, he gets a letter giving a report about how the Corinthian church is doing. And so we've been looking at this letter. This is Paul's reply to this kind of like information he was getting about the church that he planted. There were some, there were some things not going so well in the Corinthian church. And so um, he kind of talks about, um, about, about loving others, that there's going to be diversity. If you pull people that, you know, irregardless of race and ethnicity and background and personal story and coming in worshiping Jesus, there's going to be some kind of natural conflicts there. How do we navigate that? Then he kind of goes into how do we, how do we love people through our bodies, talking about uh, sexuality, talking about sex, and how do, we, how do we navigate all that? And then we find in chapter 8, which is what I'm here to kind of talk about, in chapter 8, he kind of goes into a whole, whole different subject matter. And chapter 8, 9, and 10 is one big arc of him creating a case for something. And that's what we're going to get into so I hope that uh, God's word kind of comes alive to you no matter where you're at with him today and that he would speak to us. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together. We thank you that we get a chance to dive into your word. God, to see who you are, to see how you're counseling us in the 21st century. God, to live a bold, courageous, adventurous, but more importantly, fruitful life. God, that we would live lives that are fruitful for you. God, that we wouldn't spin our wheels or just exist in toil, but God, that you would shape and fashion our lives to God to produce fruit for you. And God, as we do, we get to know you more, which is the greatest treasure of all, that we get to know you, Jesus. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to move into chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, uh, open up to 1 Corinthians 8. If you don't, that'll be on the screen behind me. But if you do have a Bible, crack that open, uh, 1 Corinthians 8. And in verse 1, he said, Paul says, Now let's talk about food that's been sacrificed to idols. Okay, you know, we don't really have that so much here uh, in Manhattan, Kansas. It's not like we have, you know, a certain temple that we go down. Um, but how Corinthian culture was arranged and actually how most Roman cities operated, there, there's usually a temple temple to some Roman god, Greek god, and you would bring your offerings and sacrifices to that temple, and they would sacrifice your animal, whatever you brought, and it would usually be divided into three parts. Uh, one would be kind of an offering to whatever god you're giving that sacrifice to. A third you would take home and eat on your, by yourself, and a third would be given to the priests. And those priests would either eat it or distribute it back out to the population at a cheaper cost. Okay, so that's kind of how how that how that worked. And so Paul is finding that there's a certain group of Corinthians in the Corinthian church, mainly wealthy, because 
with this matter, eating meat was kind of a wealthy uh, thing to be able to go to the temple and actually afford meat and eat meat. Um, but uh, so, so Paul is, is hearing that there's certain Corinthians that are believers, but they're still making sacrifices or eating in the temple to another god. And so Paul is giving them instruction. How do we navigate this as a follower of Jesus? People, how do, you, how do we, as a part of the world that are now followers of Jesus, how do we interact with the world now that you know, Jesus is our Lord, that we're serving a different God? How do we walk this out? And this is what Paul's kind of getting to. So there was these people that were uh, eating in the temple, um, and Paul was addressing that they're... they're there, there were some other Christians in the church that were having a really hard time seeing other people in their church eating sacrifices at a Roman temple, right? That, that would probably cause a little stir, right? Like, man, some of our wealthiest people, some of our more influential, they're, they're, like, they're like still doing the things that they used to do. And then meanwhile, the kind of the, the there's another group where, Paul calls them weak Christians, not that they're physically weak, but they just, they just didn't have certain revelation. They were still kind of under the superstition of offering uh, sacrifices to idols that had influence over their life. So he goes this, and, and he kind of gives them a hard time, because these people that are in the temple, eating in the temple, but are followers of Jesus, they're kind of, they're kind of like not really concerned about other people's opinion. They're not really concerned. And so Paul calls them these knowledgeable Corinthians. And he kind of gives them a hard time about their knowledge. It's like, anyway, so Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 too, it says, anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. He's calling them out. They're, they're, they're standing on, I have knowledge that these idols that we're worshiping to are not really God's. We know that there's only one true God, and that worshiping, I'm still kind of maintaining my social connections, I'm still maintaining my place in society by continuing these relationships in the temple, not the Jewish temple, the Roman, these, the, to a Roman God. And uh, Paul was kind of calling him out for it. He says, but the person who loves God is the one God knows and cares for. Paul, Paul calls him out, and he says, knowledge is actually... Knowledge actually puffs you up if it's for your own self-glorification. And then he pits it against love. That this, this element of love that you may have knowledge, but actually you're still lacking, Corinthian believers. You actually need love. And that you're standing on your knowledge, but your knowledge is incomplete. And he says, but the person who loves God... So he's pitting these two things. On the one hand, there's knowledge. And it's not so much knowledge in general. It's what I would call religious sophistication. Okay, does that make sense? Religious sophistication. They had special knowledge about the gospel. But they were leveraging that knowledge to just do whatever they wanted to. And Paul says, man, your knowledge is lacking. You're not walking in love. So that first point. Paul's, Paul, Paul's big theme for chapter 8 is choose love over knowledge. Choose love over knowledge. 
Paul has to use this skill, and if you actually kind of get into it, it's actually pretty artful how he does it. It's very complicated uh, what he's kind of dealing with. Um, because on one hand, he said, hey, whatever food you eat, irregardless, we all know that it's, the God, it's God who made everything. So on one hand, he's siding with this, these knowledgeable Corinthians, saying, hey, I get it. I actually get it. However, the way you're carrying this out is actually maybe influencing weaker Christians that's going to, if they see you worshiping in the temple, even though it doesn't violate your conscience because you have this special knowledge, if that weaker Christian walks by and sees you eating in the temple, it may tempt them to sin. Not tempt them to follow your, but it may tempt them because they're believing certain things and it may lead them back into pagan worship by seeing how you follower of Jesus, are carrying out your faith. Does this make sense? Y'all flowing? Clear as mud. All right, great. So Paul says, don't use your freedom to lead the weak to stumble. In other words, eating this food could have have caused a misunderstanding. There were some that hadn't outgrown their former superstitions, and Paul says, hey, you have to take care of them, irregardless of your freedom. So Paul advises, it's better to refrain from publicly eating food that has been offered to idols. Just take the meat home. Don't lead somebody astray because you're just flowing in your freedom, and you may not have a conscious issue about something, but when a, a person of weaker constitution or conscience comes around, if you're leading them astray, Jesus said this you know, over and over. It says it, it'd be better that you would... Uh, tie a millstone around your neck than causing one of these little ones or causing one young in their faith to stumble. And so again, the whole context of this whole letter is Paul is seeing that there's disunity and dysfunction in this church and his whole goal is I want to produce a gospel-centered community and I'm going to address certain issues that's keeping you back from being this gospel-centered, full-of-love community. And what Paul is doing throughout the whole letter, not just in this section, is that he's applying the great commission or the great commandment from Jesus. You remember that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love other people in the same way. That's the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us. That's pretty much the one that he gave us. There's others, but that takes the cake. And Paul is trying to work out this commandment of loving others with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength in a very unique way. How do we let love lead our life? So what was so common in the culture of Paul's day in Corinth, sacrificing meat to idols, is like we kind of joked about. We don't really do that today. So what can we gather from Paul about this to us? What does this text lead us to let love lead in our lives today? Now, as a follower of Jesus, man, there are certain things that Jesus has set us free from, that we are no longer under, that we are no longer captive to, that we are no longer bound to. And that's tremendous. But I think in this kind of taking the principle of what Paul's speaking, let's kind of interact with it a little bit in the 21st century. So they're, they're eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. 
Okay, well, how do, we, how do we overlay that in a 21st century context? I mean, the easiest jump would be, okay, what I eat, what I drink, what I smoke, you know, if you have a cigar or whatever. But it's like, okay, well, that, yeah, I need to probably take into account what I do there. But what if we kind of went in a little different direction? What if we thought of anything that I bring into my system and anything that comes out of my system? What if it's like not just the food I eat, but maybe it's the media that I consume? Uh Uh-oh, we're going to step on toes the next five minutes, all right? What if it's the media that you consume? What if me as a follower of Jesus, because all my friends at work are talking about Game of Thrones, I feel like, man, I got to watch it so I can keep up with the current affairs. But as a follower of Jesus, how do I do that when I know what's in there? Or how about, hey, fellas, let's go out to a movie. Man, what movie are we going out to? Man, we're going to, I don't know, Satan Worshippers 10 or whatever is out there. It's like, (laughs) all right, let's not do that. Let's stay inside because it's cold and play games or something. I mean, it's like, no, when you really think, no, when you really think about it, And so a lot of times the media we consume now is in private, so it's a little bit different, but it's still worthy of considering. God, what am I putting in this system? Maybe what am I putting out? Maybe as a follower of Jesus, and I think this is where where Paul's whole thrust of his conversation maybe goes to a little bit more importantly in the 21st century. What What about the things that you share on social media? What are the things that you've liked, that you've commented on? Man, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Or like you shared, and it actually causes division in the body of Christ. Are you willing to hold on to your political position so firmly that you're willing to cause offense to a person that may not know so much about their faith, but because they grew up a certain way, they come in and you're like, oh, you mean... My allegiance to Jesus also means my allegiance to a political party? No, it doesn't. But when you think of the actual things that are coming out of you into the world, are you actually causing people to doubt their faith, causing people to take positions that are unresearched, not even biblical, but because you grew up believing, well, this is the right thing to do. It's like, really? Are you willing to put other people's faith on the line because you just want to have an opinion out in the etherverse? That's a new word, by the way. (laughs) Patent patent that one. I don't think that's going anywhere. (laughs) That's not getting popular. That's not going to be a thing. But, I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, really, really think about how does my life, how does your life, how you live your life, what you do on your weekends, what you do on your free times, the things that you're, will it interfere with other people's faith or being drawn to God? No, it's not like I'm saying don't post political stuff. But if you do, post it that's well-researched, that's balanced, that has both opinions, that calls their side out very bluntly and over. I mean, just like... The things that we share, it's not like that we don't share them, but share them in such a way that it provokes thought, that it provokes questions, that it provokes, like, you're entrenched in this camp. How do you not be? 
Because in Jesus' way, especially in our context, man, Jesus' way is the third way. We have Republicans, Democrats, but Jesus' way is a third way. Are you still worshiping at the altar of the state in our society? Because that's what it's actually become. It's worship, looking to a Savior to save us. So what would Paul say to us? What would Paul say to you in your own individual life about how do we carry out, how do we walk out this love relationship in the context of community? Because like we're seeing, it's not just about you, and it's not just about your own life. It's that, I'll say this, when every choice that you make has to do, it's all about you, you're going to live one way. But when your choice is, my actions actually not only... not only reflect who God is and what He's about, but it actually impacts the community that I'm involved in. The community that God has called me to. The community that He's called me to build the kingdom with. That your actions actually may impact them. And so Paul is saying, hey, you knowledgeable, you knowledgeable Corinthians... It's not about you. It's about the community. It's we over me. It is we. It's the context of the community coming together. The message of Paul for the church today is is that one may well have freedom in Christ, but it must be used with discretion. And in particular, with care for the sake of the vulnerable. One's own freedom in some matters of behavior can be put aside when a faith crisis of another is at stake. I mean, there's, there's a handful of guys now that I'm working with that, that are alcoholics. And so, as a person that is in their, in their life, like, what's the one thing I shouldn't do with them? Drink. What's one thing that I need to put aside so that I can minister to these guys? Because they need an expression of the gospel without the thing that's actually keeping them down. To relinquish one's freedom is not to lose it. A lot of times we think, man, that just sounds... No, it's that you are completely free and you are free... To use your freedom in this way. Like I choose to exercise my freedom out of my love and out of Jesus' love for the treasure that's in this person that he's put in my life. Like what do I need to do to put me aside so that I can minister and so we can minister as a community to people? Paul could have asserted his right. Oh, sorry, I moved on super fast. Wow. Okay, so in the... In this arc of, we just basically covered chapter 8, okay? Summary of chapter 8. And then he pivots into chapter 9, and he starts talking about his, the way he makes his own money. Paul does. Which you think, like, man, you know, we were talking about, like, meat to idols, and now in chapter 9, you're talking about, like, money, Paul. Like, what's up with that? Now, Paul, this is so artful how he does it. He's giving his own example of how he's denied his own rights The things that he could do, he's given the example of like, I'm not doing that way. I'm denying my rights so that the gospel may be preached freely. 
So Paul seems to kill two birds with one stone, because again, all we know about the Corinthian church is what we see Paul addressing. That's the only way we can kind of know, like, yeah, there was some dysfunction when Paul says, yeah, there's some person that's sleeping with his, what is that, uh, stepmother. Yeah, it's like, yeah, okay, you know, that's, that's, that's an interesting, that's, you know, so it's like, yeah, and then somebody in that church was sleeping with his stepmom. Yeah, right? So in the same way, like, Paul is dressing his own finances, and you can kind of gather that people were giving Paul a hard time as to how he made his money. Now, Paul, because he wanted to be free of constraint of any one church kind of giving him resource, and sometimes when, when certain entities give resources, there's always strings attached to it. Hey, we'll, we'll support all your income as long as you're here, you know, 30 days, 30 weeks out of the year, Paul. Paul's like, man, I just, I can't. So what he did is he made tents. He was a tent maker. He was... He, he had his own side business, and he would gather people in his business that he would actually disciple, and they would go town to town, they would make money, and then Paul would spend the extra time like ministering to people. And so people were kind of like, well, you, you, know, you could spend more time preaching, Paul, if you would just take this money, and Paul's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I could take that as a right of a you know, minister, as a shepherd, that I did indeed you know, help plant, but it's like, I'm not taking that. Because even though it's my right, I want to see the gospel advance. And it has nothing to do with me. It's we over me. And then Paul goes in, and it's a great example, but then Paul goes in, he's like, basically, I become all things to all men in order that I may win some. When I hang out with Jewish people, I kind of be, I, I kind of slide right in because I was Jewish. I kind of know their customs, and so I'll follow their customs. But when I'm around Gentiles, it's like, man, they don't have the same customs, but I'll, I'll kind of fit in as best as I can, still obeying the law of Christ, which is love, but I'm going to do anything that it takes to win them to Christ. And so I'm willing to flex and, and, and kind of like, you know, find my way through. But again, it's having this ethic or this principle or this lifestyle of love, which is guiding all of our decisions. And so Paul, to kind of end in chapter 9, it says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul is saying, choose love, not only knowledge, but choose love over your own rights. Over your rights, choose love. Choose love. And then he goes in, right after what we just read, he goes in and gives this example. Now, in Corinth, I don't know if you picked this up or remember, but in Corinth, you had the Olympian Games in Athens, which is a city just a little bit over. And they had Olympics every, what, four years, right? Four years. But in Corinth, they had the Isthmusen Games. Say that five times fast. Isthmusen Games, like the Isthmus? Isthmusen. Anyway, Isthmusen Games. They happened every two years. And they were the second most popular games in all of Rome. So imagine your little town that has two, a two-port city, and every two years, like let's just say, because we're in wildcat country, let's just say that every two years the national championship of football played in our stadium here. What would that do to the city? Like every two years, like your city would begin revolving around, 
Athletic competitions. There are athletic competitions all the time, every weekend. Hasn't changed very much. But he says this, and so he gives them an example about how he lives in a way that they could get it. 1 Corinthians 9.24, remember that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. We do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I'm disciplined my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself will be disqualified. Man, that's crazy. He gives this great example of like, man, just like an athlete that you watch all the time, you know their training, you see them on the streets, you know their kind of level of commitment and level of discipline. Paul's like, I'm even more. Because the reward that the, in the uh, Isthmus and Games that they would get is a wreath of withered celery. That was their wreath. Literally, withered celery. And so it's, uh, this uh, theologian, this guy Richard B. Hayes, comments on this. He says, The Christian life is not an orgy of self-gratification, but a disciplined life focused on things that really, ultimately matter. They had, as <laughs> Paul is saying, if these athletes push themselves to the limit in training to win, that pathetic crown of withered vegetables, how much more should we maintain self-discipline for the sake of an imperishable crown and a gospel that Jesus came to bring? Come on now. Paul has purpose and intention with how he lives. And he's maybe asking this question. Can you exercise self-control for the sake of others on the team? Can you exercise self-control for the sake of others on the team? And when I say team, I mean this team. It's very hard for us to get into Paul's mind because he had a Hebrew kind of oriented mind. And in their culture, everything was about community. That's, I, I think a few weeks ago you were talking about, you know, you wouldn't hear songs talking about, we love you, Lord, or I love you, Lord. Thank you for coming to me. It's, we love you, Lord. Thank you for coming to us. And so it's very hard for us because we're, very, we're trained to live individually. I mean, our culture is all about pull yourself up by the, you know, rugged independence, or like whatever. And so it's very hard for us to kind of see our lives in the context, the intertwining of our lives in the context of community. So Paul talks about, be careful for the weak, deny your rights, do everything you can for the sake of the gospel, live this disciplined life. And then in the last kind of arc, the last kind of point, he gives a warning to flee from idolatry. Basically, it's like, I know you've been set free. You have this special knowledge. Jesus is now Lord. There's no other gods but him. And then he gives an example of his own denying rights. But then he's like, in this living life as a community, he warns them, but watch out for idolatry. Now, we, we 
I think we talk about idolatry enough here, but like, what is idolatry? It's anything that we worship or turn to for our security, our salvation, and our comfort. It's anything that we turn to. So it doesn't mean, doesn't mean that I need to go, you know, to my grandma, certain, you know, if you live maybe in Asian cultures or in African cultures, I mean, you'd, you'd go to your, you know, grandparents and there would probably be an altar to your ancestors, an altar to a God that has been partial to your family or whatever. And, you know, you're, you're worshiping these things, but idolatry is not the same thing, you know, today. I mean, when you think of like, let's get, I want to get some feedback real quick. When you think of like our biggest idols in our country, in the, in the United States, what would, what, would it, what would those be? What would be some? Huh? Money! Money, <laughs> money talks. Mo money. If you, if you got my mo money comment, that was, that's pretty special. Lynn Living Color from the 90s. There you go. So money, what did you say? Traveling, Le- like leisure? Yeah, leisure. Like you see, you know, like, oh, like someone creates like Facebook, and every time you see their picture, it's like, oh, they're in, in Bali, and you're like, oh, now they're in, you know, like Taiwan. And yeah, so you could, you could look at your friend who's like, yeah, I went to Bali, it was awesome, and then you orient your whole goal of working life. <laughs> I need to go to Bali. There was one guy that, that you know, he, he was living for a boat, man. That's all he wanted was a boat was his ticket to freedom. And so he worked 35 years to accumulate money enough for the boat, and he passed away a year and a half later after he got it. That boat, it's a big idol. What else? Food and fitness. Food and fitness. Yep. That's good. Beck, we were talking on the way. Becky was like, I think food's an idol. It's like, yep, it totally is. It totally is. Huh? Power and sex. Power and sex? Absolutely. Yeah. Career. Career. Yeah, your path to success, kind of worshiping, and that if your trajectory doesn't go up and to the right, when that plan kind of like life dips that plan, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What? What was that dip? Like I was all the way up and to the right my whole life. What happened? Yeah, life happened. Deal with that. How, anybody else? Yeah. Ourselves, Ourselves, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. I just thought of Jim, uh, Jim Gaffigan has a little blip on being selfish about working out and all that stuff. Um, But yeah, we, we can kind of like, and so long story short, we can basically kind of adopt these kind of things and kind of think, well, that's how you were supposed to live. Like, well, that's just what we do. But I would say that as a follower of Jesus, the onus is on us to say, really? Really? Is that, is, is that, really, the, is that really ultimately worthy? Is that really what you want to spend your time and effort and energy on? Like getting to this you know, platform, getting to this place, getting to this whatever it is? Paul is saying, watch out, check your heart. Is there anything that you are still holding on to from your old past that is actually that you're unwilling to let go for the sake of the gospel because you're not wanting to let go of that idol? And Paul is saying if you're in that position, you do not have the ability to love properly because you're going to love people, honestly, you're going to love people towards your idol unintentionally. I mean, it, it happens all the time. People who, you know, 
Now, there's a fine balance. People who work out, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, I got to, you know, I'm stewarding. All right, well, that's cool. That's a good motivation. But then there's people, like you said earlier, about working out, about making it an idol. What happens when you get around them? What do they only talk about? What do they try to convince you to go do? <laughs> Heck no, man. I'm not doing that kind of workout. But that's unintentionally what happens when we have an idol in our life. We're unintentionally drawing them, and especially maybe people that are of weaker faith, or more, we're drawing them into something that actually can lead them away from the Lord and you. Because what Paul, Paul wraps this, Paul, Paul kind of, he, he says, I've said in chapter 8 that these aren't gods that you're, worshiping, that you're worshiping to and eating meat from. He's like, they're not gods. But actually, they're demons. And when you participate and eat food around an idol, or when you congregate around an idol, Paul is, Paul, where was I going with that? When you congregate, oh, and, and food is involved. It's, it's kind of like, man, this party is about worshiping this idol. And Paul says, you got to be careful. He's actually, that's the one why the Lord's Supper has so much power. It's because we as followers of Jesus, we're now reorienting our life, not around the feast of whatever idol that we used to worship, but we're now orienting our life around the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper that we eat together, that we, that we commune together, and that we are worshiping completely different, and that our life should look completely different than what we were like before. Your status, your comfort, your reputation, your place in society, your time, whatever routine you have, your deep opinions about something. Paul's saying, be careful. And he, and he goes, uh, and he says, 1 Corinthians 10, it says, So, my dear friends, flee from the worship of, of idols. Flee. That means like run. Fast. Flee. When you think of like, you know, you see some, some, uh, all, do you ever, um, you know, sometimes you get late at night and you get kind of bored and so you're, you know, you're kind of doing the YouTube kind of train and you're going from station to station on YouTube and you're like, oh man, that looks funny. And you're like, oh man, that looks funny. Do you ever kind of like land on like people that get scared, you know, like people that get, you know, scared by somebody else, and their, your automatic reaction is like, ah, you know, and it's funny to see how different people uh, get scared, and uh, different people's reactions, some people punch, you ever seen those movies, or instead of running, it's like an automatic aggressive, it's like, yo, man, where, where'd that come from, it's like, hey, man, you scared me, that's what you get, when you tangle with the tiger, man, that's what you get, but but that, that kind of image of like flee, like flee. Paul's saying, don't mess around with it. If there's a question on your conscience as to whether it's, yeah, you probably should just flee. So once Paul makes this point, it becomes clear. The God who demands exclusive allegiance will not tolerate cultic eating that establishes a bond with any other God or powers. Because he... He's trying to anchor them in chapter 10. He's trying to anchor them into Israel's story because they were Gentile people from, that didn't know anything about the Old Testament or God's law. And so he's trying to anchor them, and he gives examples of how when God's people fell into adultery, how God responded. 
So at the end of the chapter 10, he, so he's challenged, he has challenged so far, he's challenged these knowledgeable Christians to actually bend low for the weak. He gives an example of him giving up his rights. And then in chapter 10, he warns against idols, but then he wraps up his whole kind of argument that started in chapter 8. And he says this, All our actions should glorify God by seeking the benefit of others rather than ourselves. All our actions should glorify God in seeking the benefit of others rather than glorifying ourselves. But within that framework... You are free to eat whatever you want. It's like, wait, what? Like, okay, you, say, you were saying to bow low for the weak out of love. Yes. However, Paul says, and I think, I, I think his mind is also going to like, I need to set them up for success. I don't need them to give them a rule. I need to give them a principle to live by. Does that make sense? So if you get rules, it's like, well, I obeyed the rule. I didn't obey the rule. Well, what if... It's like, you're to live by the ethic of love. It's like, that doesn't give me any guardrails, man. Like, I need, especially certain personality type. You know, it's just like, man, I need details, okay? (laughs) This whole ambiguous, this tension thing in between, like, I'm free to do whatever I want, but then I need to love people at the same time. It's like, okay, how do I do that? He's saying... We are not to be bound in our life by the theology or the belief of a young believer. However, we must live in such a way that accommodates for them in our life. Because I think that, the, that Paul, he was attacked by these guys often. They were called the Judaizers. And I'm going to wrap up here. But even if the legalists from a Jewish background had said to the Gentiles, now imagine this. Jewish believers, they said that followers of Jesus have to follow the Old Testament. All its rules, 613 of them. Jesus satisfied a few, but there's a few for us to obey. And Paul says, no, we're not strapping Gentiles with Jewish law. But imagine, if a legalist from a Jewish background had said to the Gentiles, your lack of obedience to our customs stumbles us. We are stumbled brothers. You must do what we want. Paul would have replied, You are not stumbled because you aren't being tempted to sin through their actions. Your legalism is being offended. Out of love, I will never act in a way that might tempt you to sin. But I don't care at all about offending your legalism. In fact, I'm happy to do it. You see the tension here? See, Paul wasn't going to be strapped by, you know, the most legalist person in the room. Like, hey, you've got to accommodate because it, it offends me. It's like, no, it's not tempting you to sin. That's what I'm actually speaking about these younger believers. It's actually tempting them to sin. It's actually, on the, on, for your perspective, it's actually offending your legalism. And Jesus did not come to bring legalism, but a lifestyle and a culture of love worked out in community. Amen? All right. Then he lands and says, imitate me as I follow Christ. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God.
So let's pray, and then we're going to go into communion. Uh, so Lord, thank you for our time. God, just whatever is your Holy Spirit on this word, God, I pray that, Lord, as we leave here, we wouldn't be able to get rid of it. God, teach us and train us how to be mature followers of you, that, Lord, where people get around us and they fall in love with Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to move into a, just a simple time of communion to kind of wrap our service up. So there's, I believe, two stations in the back. So if everyone can stand up and go back and get the elements, keep those elements, and then we'll take them together uh, right when we get back. Let's, I went a little long, so uh, maybe let's do that quickly.